0: The year was 1996. A ninth grade Christy sat brooding over her journal in her bedroom, which incidentally, had been personally decorated with pictures of babies jammed inside cabbages and sunflowers that she'd artfully cut out of an old Ann Geddes calendar. Don't worry about it. The dulcet moody tones of the cranberries, no need to argue, played in the background. When Zombie came on, Christy wiped a smear off of the giant glasses that touched her cheekbones and pushed back a greasy hair from her not quite a pixie cut, not quite a mullet hairdo. (laughs) The mood was ripe for some teenage ranting. Literally, the following is an excerpt from my ninth grade diary that I found in my closet. I was so worried that I would lose my friends to different cliques this year, since ninth grade is the true beginning of high school. This was so hard because even with all of my friends last year, I was so lost. I grew distressed over the tiniest things, getting mad over and over again over why a guy would talk to Brooke first or flirt with Jasmine. Jasmine is really pretty, but I think guys just like that Brooke always laughs at them. I should try to laugh really hard at all guys' jokes. It worked. It's how I got Sam. (laughs) Also, um, I started conditioning at school for my sport this term. I'm taking it with Rebecca. We're going to work really hard on getting thinner. There's nothing wrong with working towards this goal, but sometimes we start comparing ourselves to others. It's not like we're fat, but I pray that we and all the other girls won't criticize ourselves, especially that Tammy won't criticize herself. Uh, I often think she's anorexic. She barely eats, is like a stick, and complains about getting fat. I pray that the Lord will teach her through us that he made her just the way she is, that she shouldn't be self-conscious, and that she should recognize and deal with her problem. (laughs) Oh, sweet teenage Christy. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, the insecure, people-pleasing list does not stop there. Um, Up until midway through high school, I was too nervous to tell the teacher what I preferred to be called on the first day of school, so no one knew that I preferred to be called Christy over Christiane. I damaged a lot of friendships by being petrified about confronting an issue and choosing to rather vent about it, to get it off my chest so I wouldn't be pent up, you know, uh, with anyone who would listen. I have always been a crazy sucker for comparison. for example, from my current life, um, when I see a parent with orchestrated craft time every day, <laughs> I automatically think, what is my problem, and why do I love letting Emmett watch cartoons for an hour, more like two, <laughs> in the morning? Uh, when I drive past Wash Park and see the millions of fit people with their custom-bred dogs jogging, my first instinct is to yell out the window, overachiever! (laughs) Don't, I don't, I don't do that. And I appreciate their discipline. Um, (laughs) I've always been really scared of disappointing others. I still try to make my parents really proud of me. Um, I read really far into people's body language and tone. I tend to downward spiral into a tornado of obsessing and worrying and blaming others when someone confronts me about something I messed up on. So I've always been deeply empathetic and more often than not, a people pleaser who cares really deeply about others and their perspective of me, oftentimes way more than I care about what God thinks about me. Uh, Thankfully, God knows this about me and he's been refining it oftentimes painfully <laughs> over and over and over in me. And so that's why when we were choosing sermon passages in staff meeting and I saw the one that Mike had subtitled fear of man versus fear of God, I was like, well, crap. <laughs> Guess I have to do that one. Um, okay, this week we're going to be looking at Luke 12, 1 through 12, and I'll read through it for you real quick. Um Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will not be forgiven. But anyone who... Oh, will be. (laughs) Sorry. Um, But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And so you can see my MacGyver toolkit. (laughs) Um, All right, we're in the thick of Jesus and his disciples journey to Jerusalem. The tension is mounting. The end of Jesus' time on earth is getting closer and Jesus isn't messing around. Uh, In the past couple of sermons, we've seen him drawing a line in the sand over and over again. His focus has been on teaching that you hear the word of God and you obey it. In this progression towards the cross, we have two interesting things happening. On the one hand, we have the mounting anger of the Pharisees. Uh, Last week, we looked at Jesus blasting the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, for trying to seem clean and pure on the outside, but on the inside being full of greed. The passage ended with, When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. They're out to get him. Um, On the other hand, you have the insane rise in Jesus' popularity. So Luke 12, it opens with, Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands had gathered. They were trampling on one another. They were literally trampling... (laughs) each other to see Jesus. So the picture that came to my mind when I was trying to think of what this crowd was like was old videos I've seen of Michael Jackson walking through a crowd of people and his fans are like shaking and just like weeping and some literally pass out. Um, so, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to slip that into my slideshow. <laughs> For Tina Ray in particular, <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the real picture. Um, so literally weeping, and I don't know what that beautiful hand-drawn portrait is on the right side. I kind of think that it's Michael Jackson kind of portrayed as the Virgin Mary holding baby Jesus, but it also could just be baby blanket. Um, there's no way. Of, oh, think yeah, just. <laughs> Feel free to go back to that one whenever you want because (laughs) it's, yeah. (laughs) Um, Before diving into what Jesus does in this scene, let me tell you what I think some of us might do. Uh, Think of a time in your life when you have felt adored. Um, It may be as simple as when someone praised you and you would do anything for more of that praise. Um... For those of you who are performers, <laughs> in whatever sense of the word that may be, um, think of playing in front of your like most packed house and stage diving or something like that. Um, for me, I think back on when I won the Denver <laughs> Takedowns Bacon Cooking Competition a couple years ago. Um, oh, okay, now that defeats the point because this is against holding people in awe. But thank you, I really like bacon. Um, (laughs) So, when I look back at that picture, I think, oh man, that was so much fun. I wish I had more prizes. Um, I wish I had another awesome trophy. I wish I had another year's supply of bacon. Well, that's just, I mean, that's kind of separate. You know, who wouldn't want that? but the accolade and that momentary fame felt amazing, and it kind of made me stupid <laughs> so here 's how I responded. They called my name as the winner, and I got like a little stupefied, and I just kind of was like, hey, 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 <laughs> like just did this weird little like dance and was like, ha, ah, and um, then I took the mic from them because they wanted me to say a few words, and I was like jumping and doing this like dance like I had to pee and um, all I could mutter was, um, ha, ha, thanks. I love bacon, and I also love cooking, so, um, uh, thanks. Ha, <laughs> um, <laughs> ha, I loved the praise and was dumbfounded by it, and I wanted more of it. Jesus, not so much. Well, I want more Jesus, but segueing, Jesus did not act like Christy. Um, <laughs> Jesus, in the height of his popularity, in the middle of this crazy crowd, um, he doesn't do a weird boogie dance. Um, He doesn't start jumping around and healing people for attention. Um, He shows that he's fully God, and he gets what's going on. He sees the danger of popularity, and he ignores the crowd, and immediately turns to his disciples to protect them from the temptation of fame. Man, how easy it could have been for the disciples to be like, we've got this. Jesus is here. Um, These people love us. And as long as they love us, we can move mountains. We are good. Um, But that's not what Jesus let happen. So, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the use of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus is talking about how contagious the desire to impress and the desire to look good can be. What he's pointing to is the fear of man. Um, Let me define this because I think it's, it's very helpful. So fear of man in the biblical sense is not just about being afraid of someone. It also is about holding people in awe, being controlled by people, worshiping people, putting your trust in people more than God and needing people more than God. So what does this look like for us? How do we do this? How do we value people more than we value what God has to say? So on the one hand, you kind of have the more meek displays, like the ones that look a little more fearful. Um, So joining and teasing others because it's way easier than sticking out for them. Avoiding confrontation. Obsessively worrying about what others might be thinking of you. Um, conforming to the habits of others to fit in. So when I first started coming to SCUM eleven years ago, I had just graduated from a East Coast liberal arts college. We were all pretty preppy, um, and I was very intimidated by how much black was worn at SCUM. And so I would literally be in my closet before SCUM, be like, okay, now um, if you wear this khaki skirt, that's okay, but you got to balance it with a black T-shirt, and then maybe it'll be kind of cool, and people won't, you know. I'm wearing black today, but it's not to fit in. It's just because I like this shirt. Um, (laughs) Another example is picking apart every word of an interaction with a member of the opposite sex to try to gauge if they might like you or not, (laughs) um, rather than praying about it. Um, Beating yourself up for feeling like you have let someone else down, even after they have forgiven you. Um, And then you also have displays of fearing men that may not look fearful, but they are. Um, they just are very proud. Um, so making fun of someone who looks weird to you, even if it's behind their back, obsessing over outperforming your coworkers or fellow students, um, believing that in behaving perfectly you will find favor, or in believing that your identity is validated by acting counterculturally. Um, so when I was having my dilemma in front of my closet in my early days of attending SCUM, another interesting, prideful, man-fearing thing was going on. Um, I was also showing my fear of man by taking pride in leaving the pressures of the East Coast and my preppy friends from college who were making bank in New York and Boston. Um, I prided myself in being okay with a simpler lifestyle that was much more rich with community. Um, But in doing so, I diminished my friends' lives to what I saw on Facebook, or probably MySpace at that time. I'm sorry, I'm not that hip and young. Um, (laughs) I made assumptions about them rather than praying about how God wanted me to see them. Um, Another one is gossiping about others as a way of getting closer to a friend. I've never done that, so don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> surrounding yourself with yes people, people who will always agree with you and build you up. So fear man is so detrimental because it keeps us from fearing God and following him first and foremost. Um, for example, when I compare myself to a mom who I think is doing a better job than I am, that becomes my yardstick. My yardstick is no longer my conversations with God and the truth that God has to say about how I should be parenting these two very intricate little kids who need me and need the person that God made in me. Um, or, this doesn't apply to us at all. at scum, so don't just don't even listen to it. Um, when we compare our life's timeline to the timeline of another person's life, uh, when we are, what at what point are we dating, getting engaged, getting married, having kids, getting a promotion, traveling, getting a master's degree, finishing your bachelor's degree? Man, we let ourselves become defined by God's plans for someone else's life, not ours. And the comparison and the timeline, those become our idols. Um, they define our worth rather than what God says about us, which is that he knows the plans he has for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Proverbs 29:25 says, Fear man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is kept safe. So Jesus gets that fear of man is deceitful. He knows that it can seem really promising and beautiful on the outside, as in, oh my gosh, this crowd loves us. We can take over the world. And he also knows it can feel really scary on the outside, like, oh my gosh, how many countless girls have guys chosen over me? What the hell is my problem? (laughs) Um, But Jesus is in the business of shattering lies. And so he says, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. And he doesn't just leave the disciples and us hanging, like wallowing in the guilt of being caught and fearing men, um, but he tells us immediately where to refocus. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is intense and powerful, but Jesus chose these words and took this tone because he's showing us the gravity of choosing to fear the Lord over men. Before we get into it, let me give you a description of what the fear of the Lord is. Um, fear of the Lord is reverent submission that leads to obedience, and it's also interchangeable with worship, rely upon, trust, and hope in. Like terror, it includes a knowledge of our sinfulness and God's moral purity, and it includes a clear knowledge of God's justice and his anger against sin. But this worship fear also knows God's great forgiveness, mercy, and love. In Scripture, man, there are so many verses about the fear of the Lord. Here's a couple just to expand on the definition. Um, Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. So Jesus knows the peace, knowledge, and life that comes through fearing the Lord. He's not going to speak mildly about fearing the Lord. You don't mince that. You know, we know, that the fear of man is a trap. We know the perks of fearing the Lord. Now freaking choose to do it. If the list of why you should choose to fear the Lord isn't enough, choose it because he has the power to send you to hell. So I appreciate Jesus' tone, because as someone who sometimes struggles with being a people-pleaser, I, I don't like dwelling on hell. Um, I'd much rather focus on Jesus' love and God's mercy and forgiveness. Um, but Jesus, more so than anyone on earth, gets hell. Hell means eternity spent out of God's presence. The Lord is everything that is good. Hell means spending eternity away from goodness, any goodness that is found in God. And because he's God's son and has been with God since the beginning of time, Jesus fully understands the depravity of an eternity spent away from God. So thank God he takes it this strongly, because Christy probably would not have. (laughs) He also knows us and knows how much we need him. He immediately follows up the truth that God has the power to condemn us eternally to hell with a beautiful reminder that he tenderly cares for us. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So back in the deal, they had a BOGO offering going on sparrows. So sparrows were already the cheapest birds that you could buy. Um... And they had this deal where normally they were two for a penny. But if you bought four, throw in that fifth one for free. So the cool thing about that weird tidbit is that not only does God care about the cheapest birds on the market, but he cares about the freebie one too. And he cares about us even more than the freebie. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He cares about us so much Okay. You guys, you guys and your freaking giggles. (laughs) So he cares about us so much that he chooses to know more about us than we ever even care to know about ourselves. Um, He knows the number of hairs on our head. I don't know the number of hairs on my head. I'm losing more hairs on my head every day after having a baby, TMI. You do not need to know about post-pregnancy hormonal changes. or do you? Because God does. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's no like purpose for God knowing that, but it just shows that he loves us and cares for us so much that he wants to know everything about us. He created us. He wants to know this stuff. Um, so Jesus has taken the futile hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the fear of man that runs with it, And he's contrasted it with a beautiful picture of an omniscient God who knows and exposes everything. A powerful God who has ultimate power over our eternal souls. And an intimate creator who values us more than we could ever imagine. So after showing us this stark contrast, he draws the line in the sand. He shows us the consequences of not fearing God. He makes us choose. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. Again, reiterating the, he can throw you into hell thing. What we choose on earth matters. Jesus has spelled out God's knowledge, power, and care for us. When we choose him, it has eternal weight. He continues on in his description of why fearing the Lord matters. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So this can be a little confusing. Uh, Why can speaking against the Son of Man be forgiven when Jesus just got done saying that if you disown him before men, he's going to disown you before angels? And what the heck is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? So, To answer the first question, speaking a word against the Son of Man refers to a specific act of rejection, or a series of specific acts of rejection. Uh, A really helpful example for me in understanding this is to look at our good buddy Paul. (laughs) Um, So Paul started off as being vehemently against Christians. He, in essence, spoke a word or two (laughs) against the Son of Man. He stood at the execution of Stephen one of the early founders of the church. Um, I'm going to guess that he's the man in the red robe who is looking in disdain, but not really dirtying his hands. Um, In Acts 8.3, it says that Paul was like a wild man, going everywhere to devastate the believers, even entering private homes and dragging out men and women alike and jailing them. Then, when Paul was on the road to Damascus to launch a huge attack against the Christians there, he was blinded by a light, and the voice of Jesus came down and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul obeyed the Lord, and from from that point on, God said of Paul to Ananias, Paul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the nations and before kings as well as to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for me. So Paul repented, and it wasn't easy, but he immediately applied the same fervor that he used against Christians to spread the good news. So you can see the redemption, even though there had been previous acts of speaking against the Son of Man. So in contrast to the story, you have people, you have someone who's blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy means to speak evil of God. The Holy Spirit's job is to reveal Jesus to us. So to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit means that you have permanently rejected the message of salvation. It's not that God has lost the power to forgive you. It's that you have chosen to not acknowledge your own sin and need for salvation in spite of the Spirit making it obvious to you. So Jesus has shown us the character of God versus the character of men. He has shown us the consequences of not fearing the Lord. And he ends with hope. He knew what was in store for the disciples. He knew the persecution that was waiting for them in the next few years. He knew that jerks like Paul would be out there waiting for them like a wild man. And he concludes by reassuring them. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you would say. So what does this do? First, It again squashes the excitement that came with being the focus of a huge crowd. And it turns the disciples' attention to how they will be publicly publicly treated very soon. But just as they're not to be defined and swayed by the love of the crowd, nor are they to be defined and swayed by the accusations of the crowd, the Spirit is the answer. The Spirit knows God's end game. Romans 8 says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. When Jesus says that the Spirit will teach you at the time what you would say, he means that it's not going to be given to you beforehand, a couple days before you have to defend yourself. And thank God for that. <laughs> because I have a hunch that if it was given to someone a few days beforehand, they would take time to mull over it and start thinking about, you yeah, well, that actually might offend this person, and that one might make me a little vulnerable. So yeah, I don't, I'll take this part, of it, maybe not that part. Um, so no, there's gonna be power in him giving you the words at the moment. So we see in this MacGyver of a passage <laughs> um, that God knows everything, and he's gonna reveal everything. We see that he is the one to fear because he holds eternal life in his hands. We see that he cares for us more than many sparrows. We see that there are dire consequences to not acknowledging him. But how do we attack the idol of the fear of people in our lives? How do we daily choose to fear the Lord over people? Well, here's a thought. Start acting like who you are, a new creation in Christ. James one through 22-24 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So not that your works will give you the power to never fear man, but we all know that fearing man over God is for many of us a lifelong struggle. One that requires discipline and sacrifice every frickin day, <laughs> whoops, um, to work through. In Ephesians 4, it says, "You were taught with regard to form a way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." When we choose God, it's not just a one-time act of putting off our old selves and putting on our new selves, and we're set. (laughs) Um, It's an act of daily choosing to put on your new self, choosing to put on the Lord, and trusting that God's grace is going to meet you in the process. So here are some suggestions on how we might better put off our old selves in the hope of learning to better fear the Lord. One, thanksgiving. When we start giving thanks and choosing to look for things to give thanks for, even silly little things like, well, yes, it's hot in here, but it's not 100 degrees. Thank you, Lord. Or, thank you, Lord, we do not live in the bayou right now. (laughs) It's a a dry heat. But when we do this, it opens our eyes to what God is up to outside of our self centered little world. And there's profound peace in that. Philippians 4 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious in anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a promise. Number two, meeting with other believers. I have experienced personally and I have witnessed communally um, that when sin or depression or fear or just tough crap gets overwhelming, one of the first things we do is we just start slinking away from people. Um, We pray that God would draw near and be close, but he's right here. The church is the body of Christ for us on earth. So why would we not meet with them when we're consumed by fear? 1 Peter 4, 10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Hebrews ten twenty four through 25 And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. Number three, reading the Bible. It is the word of God, and it contains truth in the face of the deceptions that we hear when we start fearing men. Acts 20.32 says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Prayer. Talk to the Lord. He already knows what's hidden in your innermost rooms. Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Number five, worship and scripture meditation. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. There are promises in all these scriptures. When you practice these things... The Lord will. He promises he will meet you with grace and mercy and encouragement and the guarding of your heart and mind in Christ. Um, so let me encourage you. I'm I, i I'm going to try <laughs> to do these things a little better. And why don't you just do that with me? <laughs> um, I'm going to close in prayer. Um, if you guys do want to pray with anybody, um We're going to have the prayer cave open during the final round of worship. Um, But let me pray for us. Um, Lord, would we personally experience your grace as we seek you? Um, But make it obvious that we don't have to do this alone. Please give us eyes that would be able to spot when the fear of man is rearing its head in our lives and in the lives of people in our body. And, Father, please give us eyes that also see how you're moving and give us eyes that can focus on that and praise you for that and hold you in awe because of that. Show us how to encourage each other in fearing the Lord. Amen.